0: So when Jesus started his public ministry at around the age of 30, um, he went through the villages of Galilee where he was living, and he began to recruit people, and he gave this basic message, which is in Matthew 4.17. It's also in the book of Mark and Luke. So we know with a lot of clarity that this is what he said. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or Matthew puts it, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same thing. But basically he's saying that I want you to... um, To turn around and come and join me in my kingdom that I'm starting. And so he went to these fishermen. After he began to give this general call, he came to these specific fishermen. And he said, uh, this is Matthew 4.19, follow me and I will also make you fishers of men. In other words, I will also make you recruiters of new people for my kingdom. And then he went to tax collectors and he went to prostitutes. And he went to Gentiles that nobody would have included. And he went to lepers that nobody would include. And he, he brought in all these people nobody wanted. And he said, follow me and join my, my kingdom. And he gathered these people together um, that he called his kingdom people. And it says in the book of Acts that they turned the world upside down. That was a complaint by somebody else about the kingdom that Jesus had brought. He's, these people in the book of Acts say, these people are turning the world upside down. And indeed, Jesus said, many who are first will be last, and the last first. So he was very intentional about that, turning things upside down. That was part of his plan. In some ways you could say he came to overthrow the Roman Empire into which he was born. But it wasn't just the Roman Empire, it was all empires. It was all empires, including the one we live in today. And he was not doing that by replacing uh, the, the armies of Rome with his own armies, which is a lot of people wanted him to do. No, he didn't do that. He came to erect this entirely new community, a new way of living, a new way to be human. And it would have been very disconcerting, I think, to enter into his band of followers, to join his, whatever they were doing, they were making camps in different places. Um, you know, think about Robin Hood and his, his merry men, uh, that kind of thing. You would come into this camp and it would have been like entering into a village that had been flipped upside down on its head, where, you know, imagine that women are standing on their heads and men are walking on their hands and children are sleeping like bats upside down, it would have been a really strange thing to enter into the kingdom of Jesus. And I mention that just because the church really needs to be different like that, because we're part of that same stream of the kingdom of God. And in some ways, the church is like Jesus saying, I want you to um, join my rebel alliance against the world, against the empire, and subvert the empire that's out there. And um, the, the two different ways of, of living kingdom empire are very clearly seen in verse 25 and 26. I don't think you get any place in the entire Bible where it's more clear the difference between the kingdom people and the empire people. So in verse 25, you see this one way of looking at and thinking about the world, which you could say is a pyramid. The pyramids of Giza depict this perfectly. Um, I think all empires have had something like a pyramid in mind, where you have this at the very top, you have the peak, everybody's trying to get to the top. So, Jesus said, this is how the Gentiles live, this is how the empire lives. The rulers of the the Gentiles, they lord it over them. That's a word that means something like oppress, or put a lot of force on, or put them under their thumb. So, they, the empire rulers, they lord it over their people. And then, They're great ones, which would not necessarily be the kings or the presidents, but just power brokers in general, people with a lot of power in the empire. It says that they exercise authority, and that's not really a very strong translation. It should probably be more like uh, they dominate them. Again, they rule them with an iron fist. They use power to uh, coerce, to manipulate, but it is not to be so among you. And so what Jesus does, he takes that pyramid and he just flips it completely upside down. It's like a funnel. And so now, instead of being at the top, which is where Satan is, who's the king of all the emperors, now at the bottom you have Jesus at the bottom of a funnel. And he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be a servant. You're not trying to rise to the top. And so upward mobility is not the direction you move in my kingdom. Instead... If you want to be great, you become a servant. And if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be the first, then you've got to go to the very bottom. And so those are the two things I want to look at, the empire and the kingdom. So first of all, the empire. Uh, In verse 17, you see this crazy battle plan that Jesus has already repeated for the third time now. And here's his battle plan. Um, I am going to go into Jerusalem, and um, I am going to die there. So he takes them aside to tell them this plan. Which, like I said, is is almost like it's like a Trojan horse or something. That I'm going to go right into the heart of the empire, and I'm going to park there, and I'm going to burst out, and I'm going to subvert the empire from the very heart, the belly of the beast. I'm going there to die. He's told them that three times now. Just to make it absolutely clear, because he knew that people like us uh, don't think that way. That is not the way we think of victory. That's not the way really any Hollywood movie, or at least very, very few of them, depict victory for the winning side. It's to go and be killed. But look at verse 18, just how the the clarity with which he he predicts what is going to happen to him. And I don't know if he got this in a vision from God or how he knew the details, but he actually says, uh, look, we're going to Jerusalem right over there. You can see the temple gleaming in the distance. They're not far now. And I'm going there. Not to be put on a throne, and not to raise an army, and not to kick out the Roman soldiers, but to be mocked, and to be flogged, which is to be whipped, which they did. And then finally, I'm going to end with uh, my grand finale, which is crucifixion. I'm going to be crucified. And again, this message is just so countercultural that even the third time he repeats it, it just doesn't compute in their heads. It clearly has almost no connection with their thoughts. Because look at what happens in verse 20. It's then, and I think it's like of all times. Of all times, then, at that moment, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to Jesus with her sons. And I love how they have their mother there to ask the question. I mean, how old are these guys? These guys are probably at least in their 20s. And, and so they ask, and it's not really even a question. They ask You know, in quotes. Look at verse 21. That's not a question. Say that this is the mother talking to Jesus. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Now that alone would have gotten a bit of a a quarrel started among the two siblings. Because who's going to be on the right? That's that's the hand of power. And who's going to be on the left? I guess probably the older on the right, the younger on the left. But she is asking for the positions of power to go to her son. So among the twelve... I want my sons to be number one and number two, or at least two and three after you. But up there, the very top. And just think about the insensitivity of this. I mean, just on that level alone, um, it would be like my wife telling me she has cancer, which she did, and then me saying to her, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about another wife? I, I've got to, fe- like, in case you die, what am I going to do now? It's, it's that level of um, just rank ingratitude and foolishness. Because he's saying, I'm going to die for you. And then they're saying, can we get some of the power that you give up? When there's a power vacuum there, can we come in and have number one and number two? Or maybe she just didn't even think about it. But it's amazing how the, the juxtaposition of what he just said and what she said, and that right there is, you know, that's the empire for you. That's just the way that we think. And if you notice, the other disciples are furious. In verse 24, they were indignant at the two brothers, probably at the mom as well, but they were definitely mad at James and John, and I would like to say that they were concerned about Jesus, but probably not. I'm sure they feigned moral outrage and pretended to be really upset about the honor of Jesus, but you know the real reason they were angry is because they wanted to be one and two, and they were mad about them taking those positions from them. It's kind of like siblings whining about screen time, you know, I always get less than her, and... Why do you love him more than me? And that they are, they are squabbling like little children, these disciples. And so Jesus calls them to himself. And he doesn't chide them or dismiss them and say, I'm going to start all over. He, um, he basically just says to them, even though their stupidity is threatening to tear the whole kingdom apart at this point, he says, uh, let's go back over the whole empire thing again. Let's recalibrate our thinking now. And he just says in verse 25, you know, don't you, the rulers of the empire and how they work, how they operate, that they're the ones that thirst for power and they're the ones who want the great titles. You know, you see them marching through our streets all the time, these soldiers, these centurions. You know about King Herod, you know about Pontius Pilate, you know about Caesar Augustus, you know the way they operate. That's the empire. And you're the kingdom. And so the pyramid, again, is the the perfect schematic for what the empire is like. Um, The peak being the goal, trying to get to that point at the very top. Top in your field, top in your class, um, top on your team to be the best, number one, to win the championship, to get above more and more people. The thing about the pyramid is that you get closer to the top, there's less and less people and more and more below you. And so your goal is to have uh, more and more people under you, looking up to you and serving you and feeding you. It's kind of like a Ponzi scheme where you join Amway and um, you pay them a little bit of money. And then you start recruiting people underneath you. And so when they get new people to join, all those funds start funneling up to you. And so you work less and less and rise higher and higher and get richer and richer and um, I, I really don't know if there could be a society more um, susceptible to this than America today. Just the, com- the competition. And not just the competition, but the, the applause and the celebration of competition. Uh, I think we're just obsessed with it. And I know there's good in that. I mean, capitalism is all about competition and I think uh, there is good in that. There's good that comes from that. Um, but you know, if somebody takes your job or if they take your starting role in the team, maybe even if they take your boyfriend or girlfriend, or they leave your team to go to a better team, you're not really allowed to be critical in our country. It's just not something you can criticize, because people will say, the pundits say, as long as they're playing fair, and as long as they're playing by the rules, may the best man win. May the best woman win. You know, a little bit of healthy competition can't hurt, but... Um, one of the reasons I became a Christian was because, uh, a major reason, was because of this, this idea in, in, in the writer C.S. Lewis that, uh, that, no, that the competition like that and pride is, is what he calls the complete anti-God state of mind. I had never been convicted of my sin before until I read uh, this idea. And this is part of the quote. It's a very long quote, but I'll just read this. Um, he calls it pride. He's not willing to call it healthy competition. And he says, pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure of having something, only of having more. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, clever, and better looking than others. If everybody was equally rich, clever, and better looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud and the pleasure of being above the rest. The pleasure of being above the rest. I heard about someone who went to the wise man to play trivia. And she said that even in the game of trivia, people were cheating to win, to be the best, at trivia. So it's, it's inherently trivial, and yet even in a trivial endeavor, people are competing to win trivia night. That's how insane pride is. The pleasure of being above the rest. It feels so good, doesn't it, to look down on people. I mean, there's nothing like that um, enjoyment of realizing you're better than them. Just objectively, that you're better than them. And so you realize I'm smarter than them. I got a better SAT score than them. I make more money than him. I'm more attractive than her. Um, I have better children than them. That's one of them. Um, the mother of Zebedee, for instance. She wants her children to be, uh, you know, honorable kids. Um, she came up to him with her two sons and she is kneeling before him. And the kneeling part is really galling. I mean, the the, um, the cringe-inducing obsequiousness of it all. That's a phrase that um, a writer named Claire Fallon uses about Mr. Collins, if, you, if you've ever read Pride and Prejudice. Uh, cringe-inducing obsequiousness. Mr. Collins is a, is a pastor. He's a social climber. And uh, he is the um, object of Elizabeth Bennet's special ridicule. And this is what Claire Fallon says about him. The floweriness, the floweriness of his pre-planned compliments, the cloying devotion to his wealthy patroness, his non-stop humble bragging and studied name-dropping mark him out for Elizabeth's special ridicule. Mr. Collins, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, you know, it's, there's one form of the empire where you're trying to look down on people, the other one where you're trying to get up in order to look down on people. And she's obviously in the latter case. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a person called the Friendship Doctor who writes for Psychology Today. Her name's Irene Levin. Uh, she's a PhD. And she has one article on a few ways to detect a social climber. And one is status-driven. So someone who makes friends based on uh, whoever that person knows. So they're, they're status-driven. They're non-committal. They wait to the last minute to confirm invitations in case something better arises. They are friend poachers. They hijack friendships to get closer to important people you know. And if you hate social climbers, that's probably an indication that you're a bit of one yourself because it's that very thing you hate in the other person that you actually are interested in yourself. There's a website called Talking Drum, and it lists the four biggest social climbers in the world today. Uh, Melania Trump, the third wife of Donald Trump, is number one. Uh, Wendy Ding is the third wife of Rupert Murdoch. And then Ellen Nordgren, the ex-wife of Tiger Woods, comes in at number three. And then finally, Meghan Markle, the current wife of Prince Harry, is number four. And if you notice there, they're all women, which uh, leads me to think that Talking Drum is probably written by men. Because it's not like men can't be social climbers, obviously. So that's the empire. The pyramid shape of so many of our thoughts. And that dark tower that we're all climbing up like little ants to get to the top to beat everybody off. The king of the hill where you throw everybody off to get to the top. And the question just is to think about in your own life, you know, what hopes and dreams of yours are inherently competitive and are um, based on you being better than someone else. The pleasure of being above the rest. I think it's, it's good to try to be as good as you can be and do as well as you can do and to maximize the potential that God has given you. But when you start thinking about other people in comparison and beating them out, then you're starting to get into the empire, that mode of thinking. So that's point one. Uh, and point two is, again, the exact opposite. And Jesus brought this mindset into the world that simply was not there before. And it's never been taught in any, any other teacher, I don't think. Because he says in verse 26, it is not to be so among you. I love that just very clear disjunction. Not that. It is not to be so among you. And I think he's saying it actually is so among you. You're tempted that way. Your proclivities are that way to be like that. But it is not to be that way among you. Among the kingdom people. In fact, I'm going to flip it upside down. And so who's going to be great among you? Whoever's ranked as great among you must be lower, go down, farther down. And so the kingdom is like a soldier that dives on top of a grenade to to save his uh, platoon. Or maybe even to save his enemy, someone that he dislikes especially. Or a sister who takes a time out for her brother who just hit her. Um, That's an example I give for kids when I'm talking about taking the Lord's Supper. Is, you know, would you take a time out for your sibling who just hits you? Um, And they rarely say yes. But then they understand that that that's what Jesus essentially was doing for us. That he was being punished for our sins. Or imagine finding out that the girl of your dreams likes your best friend. And then congratulating him on that. Another example of um, just this kind of upside down thinking that makes no sense to us. But it's basically the idea of you find great satisfaction in promoting other people above yourself. That's what the kingdom brings. And I watched a basketball game recently just to see the greatness of this point guard. He's the, great, he's the, he's the best point guard in college basketball, without any doubt at all. And he's just declared he's going to the NBA. He's been described as the next Magic Johnson, was my favorite player ever. And uh, his first name is Ja, uh, like Yahweh. Um, And his last name is Morant. And sure enough, in the game I watched in the NCAA tournament first round, he had a triple-double, which has almost never happened. Incredible. He had 17 points, 16 assists, 11 rebounds. So that's three categories, triple, and then double digits in all three. Triple-double. And it was really an amazing feat to watch him play, and to pick apart this team that was better than them. But what I was most impressed with with Ja Morant was what he said after the game. He's been interviewed, and uh, they announced, uh, the, the announcer said, what part of your triple-double made you most proud? You know, which part allows you to look down on your other competition more? And uh, John Morant said, <clears throat> the uh, 16 assists, immediately said that, 16 assists. He said, uh, one of my favorite things to do is just to see the smile on my teammates' faces when they score. I love to be able to make plays that will build their confidence, and I thought that's actually, that's true greatness. Um, the, the announcer didn't say a lot more after that, but I just thought I have not really heard a, a great athlete or a great star of any kind uh, make a statement like that. So think about the people you're most competitive with and the ones that you most want to beat out. And if you're really honest, I think you know that there are people like that. And what Jesus says here is, is I want you to do all you can to raise them above yourself. To raise them above yourself. To promote them, to serve them, to do whatever it takes. Um, whether it's a jealous coworker that's jealous of you, or that you're jealous of, or student, or a rival Sibling, I think sibling jealousy is such a powerful motivator and we really underestimate that. So sibling rivalry, if you have a if you have a sibling in your life and a lot of you do then um, your homework is to promote your sibling above yourself in some way this week. Or um, your friend's child who is smarter than your child or faster than your child or kinder than your child. And that's a really really hard one. That's that's one that parents don't talk about a lot but if if you have a friend who has a child that you're really jealous of or competitive with, do something to promote that child. Maybe just encourage them or encourage their parents about how great they are. Or say, that child's better than my child. Actually, that probably is not a good idea. But, you know, something where you're just lifting them up and saying they're wonderful. Because it goes so much against the grain. It cuts so much into our gut to be able to do that. But notice that Jesus says in verse 27... Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So he's going from great, earlier on, he he changes it from great to first. So he's, he's ratcheting it up, now you're getting higher. And he says that when you go from being great to being the very top, you're also going from being a servant to being a slave. So again, it's kind of going down. And the word slave is a very different Greek word than the word servant. Um, servant is a word that can sound very nice and helpful, like a service award or a service honor. It's something you put on your college application. The word slave is not a nice word in either English or Greek. It's a word that we don't want to use. It's hard to even say. A slave in the ancient world was owned by someone. Uh, they were in chains. They could not quit um, for the most part. And Romans despised slaves. And Jesus knew all that. So he knew what he was doing when he said that the greatest among you must be a slave. Must um, be at the very bottom of the funnel. The goal is to get down to the bottom of the funnel, to the ugliest, dirtiest parts, where all the leftover grounds get trapped, and to be down there and serve as many people as possible above you. That's what that's what the kingdom is like, and that's what's so different about the kingdom from the empire. And in a way that he's saying in verse twenty-eight, unless you do that, you really can't have a whole lot of fellowship with me. I mean, it's not saying that you can't be a Christian. Or that you can't know him at all. But it is saying that if you're always looking up and trying to get to the top of the pyramid, you really don't know him well. Because he's down there at the bottom. And so if you really want to get to know him, you've got to go down there with him. Because he says in verse 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And so if you want to know the son of man, you need to be a servant with him. And then you'll get to enjoy the fellowship of his suffering with him. I used to listen to a podcast where this guy um, would interview uh, pastors, mediocre pastors, right? He had all these mediocre pastors in who'd interview mediocre pastors. Now, there's actually no podcast like that. If you want to find a podcast of interviewing mediocre pastors, it's not out there. These were all successful pastors. These were the great pastors. These were the ones um, where uh, one guy started a Bible study in his living room, and it just blew up to immediately 300 people within like a few weeks, um, There was another guy that uh, started a church in the roughest neighborhood in Glasgow, in Scotland. And he saw all these drug addicts and all these gang members becoming Christians. There was another guy in London. And um, he had this incredible um, preaching ministry where he would train all these preachers from all over England and teach them how to preach the Bible and then send them back out. he had sent out like 50 pastors all over England. And they were all very inspiring. They went on and on. I love listening to these things. But um, at some point... I realized that uh, it was kind of turning from encouragement to discouragement and even at times into jealousy um, because I was realizing that I was not able to be excited about the kingdom of God because I was not the one who was doing it. I was not the one being interviewed and so I was actually kind of sad uh, and even, uh, even a bit depressed. And it got to the point where I was, I was on a phone call with my friend uh, whose church was just exploding, and um, after I put the phone down, I, I had pulled pull over the car, uh, and for some reason, this verse just, just came into my mind. Um, that kind of melted me, and the verse was just, whoever will be great among you, In verse 26, must be your servant. And I thought about how, really, in God's eyes, um, the great people are not the ones being interviewed, probably on any podcast or any interview show at all. I thought of um, this guy named Barry Farnham, who works at Redeemer, who basically locks the building and unlocks the building, cleans. A guy named John Angle, who works at Redeemer, who does a lot of the landscaping and mows the grass. I see him mowing the grass a lot. I don't give him a lot of attention at times because, you know, in my mind, that's not greatness. thought about um, Christine Greider, who processes all of our expense reports over at Redeemer and does a lot of other things as well. And just how many people she's serving and how little attention she gets for that. thought about uh, my son Cooper's teacher at the Montessori School. This teacher who uh, I couldn't remember her name. But I know that she loved Cooper and she loved a lot of other children. She probably made almost nothing doing that. I thought about my daughter, Roosevelt's teacher at Whitaker Elementary, whose name I also didn't know, the teaching assistant. I knew the teacher's name, but the teaching assistant I didn't know. And I just kind of waved to her, but I didn't really talk to her because I knew that talking to the teacher was more important, because she was more important. And I thought about how um, one day, on some kind of stage in some auditorium somewhere, um, Jesus will bring those people up on stage and says, let me tell you about Barry, because he knew me. And he will go on and on about the things that he loved about Barry. And then he said, let me talk to you about John. And just brag on them incessantly about the ways that these people didn't think about where they were on the rungs of society. And they just served people. And they were content. And they weren't jealous. They weren't competitive. And he'll put medals around their necks and say that I came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. And those are the kind of people that I love. And if you look in verse 28, the end of verse 28, um, that's the only place really in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, where Jesus gives really any indication of exactly what his death does. It's called atonement theory, and you don't see a lot of atonement theory in the synoptic Gospels. You see it in John. You see a lot in Paul. uh, You see it in other letters. But in, in the Gospels, you don't see a lot of explanation of why he's supposed to die. Why are you dying on the cross? Why are you being crucified? Why are you being mocked? Why are you being flogged? And he says it right here. And it's very clear that he came... Not to be served, um, but to serve and serve to the extent that he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you think about his logic there, that means that that is the ultimate service is to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Son of God was like the greatest, most exalted title. I mean, Son of Man. That would be um, what a Jewish teenager would think of as the most powerful person in the world, the very top of the pyramid. In Daniel 7.13, it says, The Son of Man will be given dominion and glory, an everlasting kingdom, which all people, nations, and languages will worship and serve him. So when Jesus says, Son of Man, he's saying, I am the greatest. And yet, even the Son of Man did not come to this planet to be served, but to give his life as a ransom. And if you've ever seen the movie Ransom, um, Mel Gibson movie, you know that... uh, A ransom is when um, someone kidnaps your child. This guy, Gary Sinise, kidnaps Mel Gibson's son. And the ransom price is $2 million. So Mel Gibson has to pay $2 million to get his son back. Well, for us, um, we know that the ransom price was a lot greater. That for all of us, um, there was a price on our heads that had to be paid. And if you add it all up, you know who knows what that number is. But Jesus said, I came and I paid that price to ransom you all. Uh, to have me for my own, and we don't know exactly the dynamics of that. If you read uh, the line, the wish, in the wardrobe, you see a depiction of that in Edmund and Aslan. I won't go into that, but we don't know that there's a, there's a strange magic to it um, of something going on uh, with this ransom idea. But what we do know that in some way there was a cup of wrath. There was a cup of punishment, a cup of judgment. It's described in Isaiah and Ezekiel, all over the Old Testament. There's this cup, and somebody's got to drink the cup. And it says in verse 22, Jesus says that, um, that he's going to drink the cup. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? He's talking to James and John who just said they want to be great. And he's basically saying, if you want to be great, there's a cup out there. And do you really want to drink that cup? And they says, yeah, we, want to, we do want to drink the cup. And then he says... Um, One day you will drink the cup, but it's not going to be the cup of wrath. It's going to be the cup of blessing because I'm going to drink the cup of wrath. And when I drink the cup of wrath, that's going to allow you to drink all the blessings.